Welcome to History Frogcast, a production of the TCU History Department, where we put the life and times of horned frogs into their rightful place. We interrupt our normal program to cooperate in security and civil defense measures as requested by the United States government. This is a Conrad radio alert. Normal broadcasting will now be discontinued for an indefinite period. Hi everyone, I'm Teresa. And I'm Marilyn. And, and this, this is, is Frogcast. Today we have a great episode for you as we'll be discussing something very exciting. From radio broadcast interruptions to in-school bomb preparedness drills, today's episode will feature an extensive post-war conversation about the public's relationship with the Cold War and provide a close study on how Americans dealt with the harsh realities of the nuclear age. With help from Dr. Laura McEnany from the Chicago Newberry Library, our episode will reveal how the history of America's wartime past serves as a compass for our future. But first, we'll take you to the very beginning. The Cold War was a time riddled with uncertainty and political hostility. Primarily waged through political and economic propaganda, this era of history executed a very limited use of actual weaponry and instead employed the absolute power of rhetoric. The era, classified as a nuclear stalemate period, was plagued with the effects of the tense alliance between the U.S. and the Soviet Union following the World War II bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This proved to be more difficult to navigate amongst the public than anticipated. Though there were no direct confrontation between the two superpowers, violence spread across the world. Government officials during this period sought to limit the spread of communism and fear-based propaganda that bled out into the American public. As Cold War tensions spread across the country, so too did misinformation. Under the Truman administration and the National Security Resource Board, Americans were tasked with embracing a bomb consciousness, rallying public sentiments around wartime readiness and education. Infiltrating the public's attitudes towards the war required an increase in political manpower so as to build this wartime uniformity and consciousness. And so, different sectors of society were called into action in new and innovative ways. Encouraging the implementation of wartime practices into domestic life remained the ultimate priority for American public policymakers. But adapting to this nuclear way of life posed concerns for what Americans should and could do should the case of a nuclear attack arise. Furthermore, what role does the government serve towards public and private entities in preparing the country for war? Let's call Masters of War. I'm your masters of war. You build a big gun. The song you just heard is Bob Dylan's Masters of War. Written in 1962, Masters of War served as a rallying cry against the American and Russian's nuclear arm race. Dylan's song served as one of many examples of the kinds of things Americans heard on radio all the time. These messages scattered across the radio, leaving American states and its people, oftentimes with more questions than answers. So, what were state officials and its citizens to do? As word of the emerging silent war spread from coast to coast, states took swift action to shelter the public from possible attacks. During those unprecedented times, no state moved too quickly. Among those that fortified their defenses was right here at home in the state of Texas, a region home to an abundance of U.S. naval, air, and military strongholds. These bases served as hosting sites for military training and largely contributed to the U.S. national defense systems, according to the Texas Historical Commission, and honorably and admirably answered this call of duty time and time again. But given the state's importance towards weapons, production, and housing of U.S. armed forces, what risk did this pose on the common citizens of Texas? 
the proximity to important U.S. military, air, and naval bases alone incited great fears amongst the Texas public, going so far as to call into question public sentiments towards the war. Despite the institutionalization of wartime propaganda working to mediate these local and national concerns by presidential administrations of America's past, this in turn would only further the divide between the public and the role of the state. Texans, like many other Americans, harbored competing apathetic and fearful attitudes towards the Cold War. What, if anything, can people do to prepare for something like this? Why is America engaging in this war following the destruction of World War II? What is the likelihood of people even surviving a nuclear attack and its long-term ramifications? Under Truman's campaign of truth, the U.S. government worked to control public information of the Cold War to combat the spread of fear and misinformation by the enemy. The establishment of propaganda agencies built public awareness and Cold War mobilization. As with all other states, the Texas public was asked to essentially calibrate their fears on their own and engage in private civil defense programs to adjust to this new nuclear age. But the question remains, how does civil defense bleed into public entities? How do these notions of autonomous practices by the American public and employment of private civil defenses contribute to this coexistence of fear and apathy during this very uncertain time? To answer these questions, we've sat down with Dr. Laura McEnany, Vice President for Research and Education at the Newberry Library in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. McEnany is highly regarded for her expertise in the Cold War era and is especially recognized for her research on war and society. Here to discuss her book, Civil Defense on the Home Front, with us today is Dr. Laura McEnany. Welcome, Dr. McEnany. It's such a pleasure to meet you, and we can't express how excited we are to have you on with us today. Your book covers a wide range of domestic practices to ensure that protection and safety for the public. I kind of would love to know what ways did post-war civil defense practices alter that front lawn to the front line kind of mentality? For the reasons and purposes of national security, which was a vague term, but to habituate them to think about living in a nuclear culture and to live with nuclear technology, technology over which they would have no decision-making power. So what could they do? The government came up with this notion of self-help. Every American could be an agent in their own defense. Every American could be a soldier on the front lawn, so to speak. And just kind of bouncing off of that a little bit, um, we've talked a lot in our class about how propaganda shifts that narrative and shifts the mindset from something like this awareness, this bomb mentality and consciousness to something like civil defense. How do you think propaganda shifts those sentiments? You know, when I was in the classroom, students love to study propaganda. And it's interesting because it's often very um, apocalyptic imagery, right? The mushroom cloud, people fleeing for their lives, monsters, sci-fi. There's a very rich nuclear propaganda in this country. People who study propaganda will say, this is what was projected. What did people actually do? Americans were not duped. They had questions or they decided that the new imaginary was so fantastical, this nuclear reality, that there was nothing for them to do and they didn't pay attention to it. And we have to understand that apathy too is a choice. You are choosing to not care. You are choosing to disengage. Propaganda operates within this web of decision-making too, but they're also making a series of decisions of at what level are they going to engage? Americans were much more comfortable supporting escalating defense budgets, budgets for military affairs, than to militarize their private spaces. So if we look at what they did, Americans did very little. They were aware, but their choices suggested they were not willing to militarize their homes or militarize their identities in any fundamental way. 
And how do you think that affected the relationship the public had with the government? I mean, like self-help defense, it also implies a little bit of an autonomous practice. How does the American public respond to the government saying, we'd like for you to engage in self-help practices versus us being more hands-on? This question of to what degree does the government get involved in your daily life was a very serious one in the nuclear age because Americans could not mount a nuclear defense on their own. This could not be strictly voluntary. So early planners began to sort of sketch out, as we're building a national security state, what percentage of that state should be dedicated to preparing civilians for nuclear war? That was a tricky question after World War II, because the question sort of revolved around, if we need to militarize the home front because of the threat of nuclear war, because of the threat of the Soviet Union, are we accepting more military control into our daily lives? And is that the kind of society we want to be? Or do we want civilian control of a strong military. And that's the choice we made, even as they warned about the dangers of nuclear attack, they warned about too big a state, too big of a military presence in daily life. And that's a long theme in American history, a sort of wariness about military control of daily life. How do you generate alertness and readiness without panic? How do we not panic people, but ask them to practice self-help? Self-help means you have to kind of have an, a sense of internal alarm and initiative that is very uncomfortable for citizens because it means that you're socializing people into a new kind of fear. You're inviting them to calibrate that fear in their daily life. And Americans in general were not comfortable with that. If there's this giant push to privatize defense strategies. How did that bleed out into public entities like public schools and public school systems? We can think about the education, the civil defense education as having a longer history than the physical shelters. So civil defense education goes to the schoolhouse very early on. And there's some, there's some good research on how public school curricula began to absorb lessons for children. And you can see it in children's literature. You can see it in educational literature. It does not take over school curricula, but there is, again, a kind of low hum about nuclear awareness, nuclear danger. And we get the duck and cover maneuver from that, right? So what can a school child do, <laughs> right? They can duck and cover. School children are not going to build shelters, but they can duck and cover. Uh, so went the propaganda. Around the time of the Kennedy administration, this is when you start to see a very healthy debate about public sheltering. But there are these physical relics of the public shelter phase during the Kennedy administration. Kennedy also, I would say, preached self-help defense. There's a very famous cover of Life magazine where there's a family shelter. But in that period, you would start to see adaptation of buildings to accommodate public sheltering. And that is where you might find the origins of the shelter on college campuses, university campuses. Well, we won't take up too much of your time, but our listeners would love to hear if you have any closing thoughts regarding anything from your civil defense book that you just love for us to know. What do we learn about who we are in war times? In the Cold War, it was an imaginary war, and in some parts of the world, it was a very real war. <laughs> but I think part of what we want to think about is um, what happens to Americans in war? 
Um, I, I think that's a question that is partly feeding what I am interested now in the post-war period, because in the post-war period, it's when people begin to look back at the war and reflect on the sacrifices and start the memory project or the memory debate. What was that about? What did we sacrifice? And what do we now expect in return for the sacrifice? And so in many ways, the post-war is a phase of the war where we're making sense of the war. We could call this a post-war conversation. You are looking in the rearview mirror at the Cold War and trying to glean lessons, which suggests that we are still in a phase of the Cold War. I don't know what phase we would call it, but we're still in dialogue about it, particularly because the war in Ukraine has spiked fear again about the threats of nuclear war in relation to what Putin is deciding to do. So we're still having these dialogues, very much so. I know we need history to keep providing us or to keep offering us some sort of compass. Well, we so appreciate your time in helping educate us as well as our listeners on such a complex and multifaceted time that was the Cold War era. This is a Conrad Radio Alert. Normal broadcasting will now be discontinued for an indefinite period. Introduced in 1949, fallout shelters were implemented to the American public as a last line of defense. Within the coming years, America would construct shelters across the country in 16 different cities. And much of this was dependent upon the geography of the shelter's surrounding environment. After all, the public used basement areas, built backyard shelters, and tunnels to ward off the threat of nuclear attacks to the best of their ability. According to David Montaigne's book, Fallout Shelter, Designing for Civil Defense in the Cold War, these shelters were constructed based on a protection factor, a, quote, quantified assessment of the fraction of radiation a person theoretically would receive inside a particular space, compared to what he or she would receive with no protection at all. By 1961, the Civil Defense Committee discussed the development for a national fallout shelter program, presenting the need for public and private shelter constructions to Congress. The Kennedy administration, expressing the very real possibility of a nuclear war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, garnered media attention and public interest for the program. Slowly, Americans focused their preparation efforts on reinforcing their homes and public spaces to ward against nuclear attacks. However, the government's ideal picture of the average fallout shelter exceeded the immediate resources available for most Americans. Back in Fort Worth, Texas, public spaces and universities like TCU felt the need to use what they had in order to shelter its students and the public in the event of a nuclear bomb. The university made use of the basements and already constructed buildings around campus and used them as bunkers rather than expending money and resources on constructing new fallout shelters. Fort Worth, like many other cities within the state, was home to various U.S. military and air bases, making it a target of possible airstrikes and raids. And again, like the vast majority of Texas citizens argued, it was a cause for safety concerns. Because so many feared nuclear annihilation, citizens adamantly took the advice of the government and exercised safety protocols as the Cold War made its way to the home front. And I'm actually going to share this find from our initial stages of research for this episode with everyone, but I'm going to let you take a look at this, Marilyn, and let you take the reins on this one. Here in my hands is an official 1971 fallout shelter emergency plan for the Fort Worth and Tarrant County areas titled, Are You Ready? In this pamphlet is information about how someone can prepare for an air attack, what the warnings will sound like, even going so far as to explain what happens if there's an attack without warning. If you flip through the pages, you'll find a map to every single public fallout shelter in the border, Tarrant County area, and directions on how to get there. And while this source is rich with information on the history of Tarrant County and its relationship with safety protocols during the Cold War era, 
There's one page in particular that definitely stands out amongst the rest. And we thought of a bit of a gold mine here, so let's flip to page 10, area number 15. So here we see area 15, a map of the 1971 TCU campus, listing a multitude of bunker locations on the university grounds. And what really struck me about this is that there was practically one in every building. I'm seeing some familiar faces here too. Sadler Hall, Clark, Amon G. Carter Stadium for all of our football listeners. In our research, we found that buildings like Colby Dormitory had basements that could feed and hold people for weeks on end. However, TCU is only capable of holding up to 2,000 of the 6,000 enrolled students, faculty, and staff, which would have left many to fend for themselves. And Marilyn, you even did a little research yourself to see if you can find any remnants of these bunkers on campus. Well, that's the thing. While we can still track down the general location of these bunkers, most have been reconstructed with campus renovations, with a few exceptions in building basements. However, there are still religious areas on and around campus that also operated as bunkers for the public. So, if you have an archaeological eye for these things, you can still definitely find remnants of it on campus. But with a few evidence of America's past still present on the TCU campus today, and circling back to that sense of urgency for private entities to create these spaces without the assistance of the government, leads us to the trials and tribulations of public emergency planning. Sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. What you're listening to is a sound bit from the 1951 government-produced short film for children called Duck and Cover. And we will post the video in our booklet on our webpage so you can take a look at it as we continue on. But this was really only one of many ways that Americans were asked to prepare. According to the popular comic book, The Age Bomb and You, Published in 1954, Americans must get used to the threat of war as a new way of life. It is not their choice, but it is their duty to be constantly prepared if their country is to survive. As we consider Dr. McEnany's statements in her book, Civil Defense at Home, the American government took great initiatives to permeate the lines of the public school system. As Kenneth Rose writes in One Nation Underground, the fallout shelter in American culture, the Cold War era incited a symbiotic relationship between civil defense professionals and teachers that determined what kind of information about nuclear war reached an entire generation. How would the government work to, quote, indoctrinate the American student to the grim realities of the nuclear age? And as we learn from Dr. McEnany, these harsh realities had to be published as mundanely as possible, especially when referencing the destruction and brutality of war. The curriculum was altered to not only quietly educate schoolgoers of the war, but to also embed the American youth with emergency preparedness and planning when away from their homes. Collegiate lifestyles, like that of TCU's student body, were no different. In fact, federal officials saw schools as the providers for local shelters because students comprised nearly one-fourth of the American population. Similarly, public universities were charged with providing public bunkers for the locality on top of educating collegiate students of wartime preparations. Not only were campuses sacred spaces for learning of these new realities, but it also meant to serve as a safe haven against them, tainting the academic experience of millions of students. TCU's vast number of bunkers across campus grounds is telling of its significant purpose during the nuclear age. To many, the continuous wartime preparations felt never-ending. These efforts, as extensive as they were, often fell short amongst college students in particular. At least, that seemed to be the general case for college students here at the TCU campus during this age. Taking a look at student accounts from TCU's repository, we were able to track down a 1962 issue of TCU's paper, The Skiff, where we uncovered some alarming sentiments from the campus community. Again, this will all be published on our website for you to reference. 
Posted right next to a section titled Faith and Fear Movement into Action is another section where students express their apathetic attitudes towards nuclear war and the implementation of fallout shelters on campus. One student even went so far as to say, I would rather let the bomb drop and not worry about what's going to happen afterward. Oh my gosh. And it's strange because even the paper acknowledged this like frame of mind saying this attitude reflected hopelessness. And it's not the only account like that. In that same issue, multiple students expressed their indifference on the subject, saying, quote, I don't see any use in building a fallout shelter. I don't want to face conditions in this world after a nuclear war. Despite the implementations of fallout shelters across campus, for the safety of the public, it seemed as though many students harbored somewhat lethargic attitudes towards the ongoing threat of nuclear attacks. Just going to show that despite this immense absorption of various genres of wartime propaganda, it still operated out of a web of decision making. And seemingly, many chose apathy. And it's strange to see how this is interpreted so differently in terms of the historical consciousness. Like Dr. McEnany stated, when we think back to this very generalized version of Cold War rhetoric with like the mushroom clouds, like she mentioned earlier, you'd think that this would incite overall attitudes of fear. But it's easy to understand how exhausted the American public must have been, especially the younger generations that pretty much had lived in a time of war their entire lives. Despite little government intervention, wartime agencies made it their mission to institutionalize emergency preparedness strategies and wartime education within school systems. And today, Cold War shelter remnants on campus serve as one of the many reminders of these widespread practices during a dark age in America. Government agencies intervened few and far between, but gave special regard to wartime propaganda in order to ensure safety protocols were met. Yet these self-help strategies left millions of Americans feeling rather torn about living in this constant state of unknown, colleges included. How would the public and public entities respond to the looming threat of nuclear attacks? Listen and learn through civil defense. This is Johnny Cash. I'd like all of you to remember that America can withstand enemy attack if we support the emergency plans of our community and learn to help ourselves. The government made it their mission to control the Cold War narrative as much as possible, including how information was spread about the war. Nuclear education permeated the lines of the entertainment industry, with prominent figures like Tony Bennett, Johnny Cash, and Groucho Marx taking to the radio broadcasts to spread the information of emergency preparedness. The entertainment industry played a large role in distributing the government's message, and was in large part how adults digested wartime sentiments. Soon, the music industry closely followed featuring Cold War-inspired songs by the Beatles and Bob Dylan. Whereas the government took a step back, the titans of the entertainment and film industry stepped in. As if this wasn't enough, universities released formal bomb threat education. And according to Rose, the embracement of the nuclear education was a way to demonstrate patriotism and serious practicality. Following this notion, the Department of Education published a number of school-oriented civil defense pamphlets, further integrating bomb education into public curriculum. In every sense of the word, emergency preparedness truly bombarded the public on every front. Yet these efforts, as extensive as they were, often fell short amongst college students in particular. At least, that seemed to be the general case for college students here at TCU campus during this age. As we look back at everything we discussed today, the Cold War was anything but an ordinary war and, as such, required a very different approach to how the public and the American government responded to such unpredictable threats. Who are we during wartime? How much of a role does the government play in America's domestic sectors? And we, historians looking back in retrospect, can argue in our post-war conversations can see how past wartime ages provide a compass in how we engage with history and its interpretations. The Cold War is a multifaceted subject in and of itself, offering insight into the relationship between society and war, but also challenging how these political and social themes tend to replicate during times of global conflict and strife. 
And TCU, in its rich and considerable history with the Cold War era, serves as a prime demonstration as to how society evolves during the post-war eras. While most bunker remnants on campus have faded for the most part, its legacy has not, functioning as an important reminder to continuously engage in historical dialogues, so as not to remain comfortable in the traditional historical consciousness. As historians interact with the research of their scholarly predecessors, history is able to be interpreted and reinterpreted with new perspectives and positionings. And that's clearly what Dr. McEnany was getting at in her closing statements. We need history to keep providing us or to keep offering us some sort of compass. Exactly. Next time on Frogcast, we cover the exchange between TCU and Jarvis. Join Ford and Ralston as they sit down with guest speaker Cecilia Hill as they dive into a captivating conversation that dives into the journey as a trailblazing student at Jarvis and TCU, shedding light on experiences, challenges, and triumphs. Until next time, Frogcast, I'm Marilyn. And I'm Teresa. Give them hell, TCU. Until next time, Riff Ram, y'all. TCU. Riff Ram.